All right. Hi, everyone. This week for the Lessie's S. Grant episode, we're going to shake things up a bit, and we're going to do the bulk of the episode as a book discussion of Grant's memoirs. I'm in the studio today with two great Washington Post colleagues. You can both just introduce yourselves. <laughs> Hi, this is Carlos Lozada. I'm the nonfiction book critic here at The Post. Hello, I'm David Marinus. I'm an associate editor at The Post, and I've written biographies of two presidents, uh, Clinton and Obama. Carlos also just recently won the National Book Critics Circle Award. And Which David, well deserved. And David <laughs> has you. won a Pulitzer, so this is um, wonderful. Which more people have heard of. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful people to have uh, discussing Grant's memoirs here today. Um, so, Carlos, this was actually your idea. Why, why did you think we should read this book for the Grant episode? Well, when you talk to presidential historians and biographers, uh, this is supposed to be the gold standard, right? Everyone says this is the best presidential memoir. Um, and I figured this would be uh, a good excuse to go back and actually read it, which I had never done before. So, David, Carlos, you both ended up reading uh, the memoirs for this discussion. What was the most interesting question or theme, David, that um, you were struck by while reading it that you well, think we should well, talk the, about? Well, the first most obvious thing is actually what's not in the book. It's not a book about his presidency at all, <laughs> really. I mean, it just barely glanced at it. Um, so it's it's a it's a wonderfully written book, but it's a study of sort of the evolution of of a leader um, and how he how he sort of moved from someone who had no ambitions into one who was one of the great leaders of American history. What about you, Carlos? What struck you? What struck me is how it really captured the dilemma of of the country in that, uh, you know, this was a, a war, the civil war that, that was brother against brother, a country against itself. And Grant fought and commanded against a lot of people that he knew very well. He had gone to West Point with a lot of the the men who became Southern officers and, and generals, and he'd fought alongside them in the Mexican, Mexican-American War. So uh, that was that was fascinating. The other thing that I thought was unexpected for me is just Grant is funny. Grant <laughs> Uh, I did not expect that there would be so much humor um, uh, enmeshed here in between the the various battles and mm-hmm. and, and troop movements. Great. Well, um, we're going to dive into the book discussion in a bit, but the story of how Grant came to write the book is actually a pretty incredible story as well. So we're going to spend a little time on that first to set the stage. I'm Lillian Cunningham with Washington Post, and you can do the honors this week, David. For starting the uh, for just saying this is the 18th episode of oh, President. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> this is the 18th episode of Presidential. We shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you, a date which will live in infamy. Ulysses S. Grant was born in Point Pleasant, Ohio in 1822. He's of course best known for being appointed by Abraham Lincoln to serve as commanding general of the U.S. Army, and for then leading the Union to victory in the Civil War. He became the most famous man in America because of that, and as a consequence he was elected president and he served for two terms from 1869 until 1877. In an early version of the preface that Grant wrote to his memoirs, 
He apologized to readers that his autobiography only goes through the Civil War. He wrote these memoirs on his deathbed, and he decided that he just didn't have enough time to write about things in his life that happened after the war, like being president for eight years. Well, similarly, I am going to apologize right now to all of you listeners that the focus for this episode is also not going to be too much on his time in the White House itself. But hopefully, by the end of this, you will at least sort of indirectly have a richer understanding of President Grant by understanding these other aspects of his life. Now, Michelle Kroll at the Library of Congress is going to flesh out our portrait of Grant. They have all the original manuscripts for his memoirs there. So I said to Michelle, you know, we all know that Grant was a fighter, but how about you walk us through Grant as a writer, Grant as the writer of these memoirs? And she said, yeah, I can do that. But um, I also have all these love letters that Grant wrote. So how about we discuss how he's a lover and a fighter and a writer? And I'm, how could I say no to that? So here's our dive into understanding the many other sides of Ulysses S. Grant. What would it be like to go on a blind date with Ulysses S. Grant? Um, With Ulysses S. Grant, if he was asking you out as a young man, you wouldn't probably think he was a good prospect. Um, I personally think he's pretty handsome, but... As, as a first impression, he didn't think much of dressing up, so he tended to be pretty rumpled. And that actually does play into his leadership during the Civil War because he's, you know, approachable. He's not, you know, fuss and feathers like Winfield Scott's nickname was. Other than the, the bars of stars on his, on his shoulder straps, you wouldn't know that he was a general. And... As a young man, you wouldn't think he had very great prospects either. He came from a family that was comfortable, was well off enough. Um, his father was a tanner, but Grant never wanted to go into that profession if he couldn't help it. He had gone to West Point, but if you had looked at him up until his pre-war career, for example, it was just a series of failures. He had done okay at West Point, but not spectacularly. He then went into the military, or continued to be in the military, and, you know, had, had done well in the Mexican War, had a couple of, you know, fairly heroic exploits, but then he's eventually posted to the West Coast, and so he'll try to make a little bit of extra money. So he has this scheme to bring ice down from from the Northwest somewhere, and the ice melts. And, but then he's going to try to do some farming along the side. So he's planting potatoes, and you know he's really industrious. And then there's a flood, and all the potatoes wash away. <laughs> and and so you know on the eve of the Civil War, he's had to go work for his father in the tannery. And so you, when you just when you look at Grant's early life, even though he's very industrious, he he's he's trying hard at all of these various exploits. It just seems like failure after failure after failure. The one thing he is really good with from the very beginning is horses. He's very loyal, and that's something that is both an admirable characteristic of him, but it also gets him into trouble because sometimes he will put his loyalty in the wrong person or the wrong people. And even though he is personally very honest, 
he doesn't always recognize the dishonesty around him. And so that gets him into a lot of trouble, both as president and after his presidency. Um, there's, the, of course, the question of his drinking, which I'm sure, you know, people are always yeah. asking about Grant and his drinking. Some people will say he's a borderline alcoholic. Other people will say that he was actually just a lightweight. And, but it seems to have, have marred his career when he was in the West. And throughout the rest of his career, there's always the rumor of, is he drinking? Is he drinking? Was he drunk? But often it may have been when his wife was not around either. So usually when, when Julia was around, then, you know, because he, he was a very devoted family man to his own, his own nuclear family. I think he had a, a difficult relationship with, with his father and, and his mother, but with his own family, he's, he's just absolutely adoring. Grant met his wife, Julia, because she was the sister of his West Point friend, Frederick Dent. Grant first met Julia when he was paying a visit to Frederick's family home in St. Louis, and he just fell absolutely madly in love with her. Something that people really don't realize about Grant, because his historical reputation is that cigar-smoking, steely-eyed, determined general, and they don't realize how, how completely adoring he was of his wife and how he wrote her love letters mm-hmm. when, when they were courting. You, you just, you, you listen to him and you go, oh, he's so cute. And the love letters also are an indication of Grant as a patient man. Grant and Julia got engaged on May 22nd, 1844, but then he had to go off to the Mexican War, so their engagement lasted four years, during which time he was away. The first letter that Michelle pulled out to show me is this letter he writes to her the next summer from New Orleans. And he says, in going away now, I feel as if I had someone else than myself to to live and to strive to do well for. You can have but little idea of the influence you have over me, Julia, even while so far away. I feel tempted to do anything that I think is not right. I am sure to think, well, now, if Julia saw me, would I do so? And thus it is absent or present that I am more or less governed by what I think is your will. Mm-hmm. So, so now he's got somebody to live for. Another uh, cute one is, so he's, he's May 24th, 1846. So he's down in, Ma- he's writing from Matamoros, Mexico. And what is very sweet about this one is that um, she sent him flowers. Pressed in the letter. Yeah. And so he has this little P.S. in his letter for her. He says, the two flowers you sent me come safe, but when I opened your letter, the wind blew them away and I could not find them. So, you know, he gets these letters and he's sort of distraught that he can't find them. But he says, before I seal this, I will pick a wild flower off the bank of the Rio Grande to send to you. And then asks if she's dreaming about him and all of this. But when you look at the original letter... Then there's down here by the by the PS there's some stains that probably were the pressed flower that Aww. that he sent to her. So you don't think of of Ulysses S. Grant as picking wildflowers to to send to send to his fiancées. Then there's another great letter that he sends her in June of 1864 while he's fighting the Civil War. This is absolutely my favorite, and you'll see why in a minute. 
So this is on the Overland campaign. You know, it's this bloody slog through Virginia. And he writes to her and he said, I wrote to you last night, but having had my hair cut today and remembering that you asked me to send you a lock of it, I now write again to send it. And there's the lock of hair. <laughs> so she kept the lock of hair. We kept the lock of hair. And, you know, it's this kind of lovely chestnut brown color. But what I, I love about this particular letter is he's running the Union Army, but he remembers his wife wants a lock of hair. And so he <laughs> thinks enough about that to get the barber to give him a lock. And then the last one I'll share with you is, and this is actually while he's president. And it's May 22nd, 1875, which is the anniversary of their engagement. She left a, a, a note for him on that day. And on the back, you can see that she had folded it up and it said, the president, immediate. So she leaves him a little note that says, Dear Ulysses, how many years ago today is it that we were engaged? Just such a day as this too, was it not? Julia. And then he writes right below it, 31 years ago, I was so frightened, however, that I do not remember whether it was warm or snowing. So here's here's the General Grant who has faced Lee, who's he's president of the United States, and he's admitting he was so frightened that he couldn't remember whether it was warm or snowing on the so day he, he, he proposed. So how does... How does Grant work his will? What are what are sort of his key leadership traits? The quality that comes out of him during the Civil War is this determination that he doesn't retreat. There's there's sort of a stubbornness about him in in a good way. You know, there's a line that he writes in 1864 when he's taken over the command of the Union armies and he's traveling with the Army of the Potomac and he says, you know, I'm I propose to hold this line if it takes all summer. And, and he does, because what he's encountering in Virginia in 1864 is just tremendous bloodletting, because they have a battle, and then Grant tries to flank Lee, and they have another tremendous battle, and Grant tries to flank Lee. So it's just, they continue on. He's holding that line if it takes all summer, even when you're getting tens of thousands of casualties on both sides, and Grant's being called a butcher and worse. Now, there's a few times during his presidency where it's also that determination to to do what he thinks is, is right. Now, on Andrew Johnson's side, sometimes that's a detriment, but for for Grant, for example, he he does try on behalf of African Americans when the Ku Klux Klan is organized and is terrorizing African Americans. He will actually send in troops under the Ku Klux Klan acts as a way of trying to, to mitigate some of of that violence. So there are times during his presidency that there is that kind of determination to to continue through even if the the political or the military obstacles seem to be very great. For a long time, the way Grant's presidency went down in the history books was as unsuccessful. Some of the common criticisms were that he was too hands-off for most of his presidency, especially at a time when the country needed a strong policy leader for reconstruction efforts. And then there was also the criticism that there was too much corruption in his administration. It reached its height with scandals like the whiskey ring. In recent years, though, some historians have started to give him more credit for the positive things that did happen on his watch, in particular his support for black voting rights. 
He signed the 15th Amendment, for example, which is the one that gives citizens the right to vote regardless of their race. Of course, women at the time still couldn't vote, but that's a story for a later podcast. As Michelle mentioned, he also pressed Congress to pass legislation against the Ku Klux Klan, and he seemed compelled to not let the progress of the hard-fought civil war slip away. But at the same time, he also wanted to bring reconciliation to the country. Those were massive challenges for Grant and for the country, and of course ones that he would leave his presidency not having fully solved. So perhaps it's not surprising that when Grant sat down to write his memoirs, he decided just to write through the Civil War. That was a story that had a clear end and a victory. His presidency, on the other hand, was very much part of a story still in progress. The Library of Congress has the handwritten manuscript of Grant's memoirs. He gave those to his son, and his son gave them to his son, and his son gave them to us. So these are what he was writing as he was dying. Most of the memoir is on, it almost looks like lined legal paper. Yeah. And you can see it's, it's very much in, in what, you, what you know is Grant's style of handwriting. So finally, without further ado, here's the story of why Grant decided to write these memoirs. It's a sad story of why he's writing his memoirs, but it's a dramatic story as, as well. Again, one of, one of Grant's qualities is that he's very loyal and trusting. So what ends up happening is in the 1880s, his son got involved with a, a financier named Ferdinand Ward in New York, and they started basically an investment firm called Grant and Ward. And Ulysses S. Grant sort of signed on as a silent partner. He invested in it, but didn't really have a lot of a lot to do with the day-to-day operations. Unfortunately, Ferdinand Ward turned out to be the Bernie Madoff of the 1880s. And essentially, Ferdinand Ward was taking in the money that was being invested into this firm. Meanwhile, he was spending it on things. And in May of 1884, he tells Grant, well, you know, we're Grant and Ward is fine, but the Marine Bank that we're involved with, that looks like it's failing, and we just need $150,000 to get us through the end of the week. And so Grant goes to his friend, William Vanderbilt, and explains the situation, and Vanderbilt writes him a check for $150,000. Grant gives the $150,000 to Ferdinand Ward, and poof. The Marine Bank fails, Grant and Ward fails, and he finds out he's lost everything. His family has lost everything he personally has. Some of his old soldiers had invested in this firm because Grant is, you know, Grant is the face of it. And, and of course, he feels horrible about all of this. And the other thing to mention, too, is that when he ran for president, he resigned from the army. So he is no longer military, and he's forfeited his military pension. Presidents also don't get pensions at this time. So He's, ha- he's reduced to having to sell some of his things. Um, he's selling his military uniforms, real estate he has, whatever, just to try to, to make up these, these losses. You know, it's, it's sort of his hard scrabble farm failure all over again. He's having to think of ways to, to, to make money. And he starts to write. He starts to write articles for Century Magazine. He finds out that he's pretty good at it. And people had always been asking him about his memoirs. And he had 
put off doing that. But now he determines that he really needs to write his memoirs. So he's going to sign a contract with the Century Company for his memoirs. But then Mark Twain reaches out and he convinces Grant to let him be the publisher instead. And what I think is also endearing about Grant is that he really has to be convinced to to make more money with Mark Twain's company, with Webster Company, than the Century, because he felt loyal to the Century. So he's decided he's going to write his memoirs. Or, But what also is going on at the same time is it's not just he's in financial straits, it's that he's he's been diagnosed with cancer. So it's probably those years of smoking cigars that he develops uh, cancer on his tongue, and it eventually starts spreading to his throat. So now not only is he faced with destitution, he's now faced with death. It's not really operable by the medical procedures at the time. So now it's sort of a race against can he actually finish his memoirs in time before he dies so that he can get them published so that his family can cannot be impoverished. Grant is in more and more pain as the cancer progresses. At a certain point, he stops being able to speak at all. He's not sleeping. He's taking morphine and cocaine to try to lessen the pain. And every so often, he takes a break from feverishly writing his memoirs to write little notes to his doctor about how much pain he's in. He writes to his doctor and he says, The fact is, I think I am a verb instead of a personal pronoun. A verb is anything that signifies to be, to do, or to suffer. I signify all three. So suffering has become part of of his his daily life. Um, He also mentions, so this is just a month before he dies. It says, I said I had been adding to my book and to my coffin. I presume every strain of the mind or body is one more nail in the coffin. What's, what's amazing about it is particularly towards the end, as the cancer is progressing and he starts to get more into volume two, the later volumes, that's the period where he's fighting Lee, too. And so he has, you know, like this kind of, you know, battle for the death uh, against Lee. And, and he's also battling his own body and his own, you know, his own ability to, to write these memoirs. And he basically finishes the revisions that he's going to do on volume two. I think it's about uh, July 19th, 1885. And he dies on July 23rd, 1885. So he finished the memoir just days before he passed away. And the first royalty check that his wife, Julia, gets is for $200,000. And it was the biggest royalty check written to that time. And ultimately, she received about $400,000, $450,000 in royalties. So the, the, the book saved his family, and the, the memoirs have never been out of print since. David, Carlos, let's talk about these memoirs. Um, and I'm just going to tee it up, and then I'll actually let you two take over the discussion. But what did you think of the book? Did it live up to your expectations? It, it exceeded any of my expectations, really? partly because it had been so hyped. I mean, I, I hadn't read it before. I'd looked at it, but I hadn't really read the whole book before. And it's always been called the best presidential memoir. And, you know, that's not a particularly high standard to, to have to <laughs> exceed, but, but it's, a, it's an excellent book by any standard. 
I found it fresh. I found the writing incredibly clear and not bogged down in what I feared would be sort of um, 19th century uh, purple prose. There's almost none of that. Um, and that sort of reflects the man himself as well. So, you know, there are oftentimes when there's a vast difference between um, how someone presents themselves to others and how they write. And I think in, in Grant's case, you just feel like you know the, the person by reading the book um, because of the way it's written as well as what he says. I was really impressed as well. Um, I, you know, when, when you're told over and over again that a book is, uh, is really, really good, uh, you, you come in with sort of extra built-in skepticism. You know, you, you want to find uh, uh, reasons why, why it might not be. Um, and it's just very honest. You never get a sense of, of duplicity. Um, you know, he, he talks about how he, he was not a great student. Um, you know, he, uh, his only ambition was to uh, be a math professor, right. uh, you know, not, not, to, not to, you know, run union armies and, um, and, and become president. It sort of reminds me of, you know, Jefferson's gravestone says mm-hmm. three things, right? Mm-hmm. That he wrote the Declaration of Independence, that he... Uh, wrote the statute of religious freedom for the state of Virginia, and, and he founded UVA, yeah. right? Um, not that he was president, right? And and this memoir seems similar to me in that uh, this tells you what Grant thought was truly significant. Uh, he's not a big fan of politicians either, so maybe that's another reason he doesn't dwell on that experience. There's an interesting, as with most lives, there's an interesting intersection between pure chance and yet this uh, determination. Um, both of which led him in different ways. And, you know, it was basically chance that he got into uh, West Point in the first place. Someone else uh, sort of bailed out and there was an opening. And um, so he didn't want to go. But but on the other hand, his determination um, to to see the country is what led him to West Point, basically, and to take that chance. But he had no ambitions to be a military man. So from the very beginning of his incredible career, there's that, that... sort of intersection between chance and, and determination. He has a great anecdote when he came back home from West Point. Oh, um, he, uh, you know, he was wearing his fancy uniform, right? And he was very excited about Sky it. Sky blue and, pants. And, right. <laughs> and he was riding, and then some kid on the street starts mocking his uniform as being, like, too fancy or something. And he says that I developed a distaste for military uniform that I never recovered from. And that's early on in the book, and i completely forgotten yeah. about it until Appomattox. And suddenly he talks about how Lee shows up for the, you know, to discuss the terms of surrender in very formal military attire, you know, with a really fancy sword that he would never use in the field of battle. And that Grant himself wasn't, you know, was wearing this kind of just drab overcoat and and felt felt underdressed for the for the occasion. And it just reminded me of that moment from his youth. And the, the book just kind of has these moments where things tie together like that. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and um, as, lo- as well as being honest, which you said, first of all, he also, though, in a very subtle way, sort of settles scores yes. with everybody, include everybody who he thinks is over overrated in some fashion or another. And so with Lee, you see that throughout. He thinks Lee got... Uh, Really good press, undeservedly so, and that's great. I love that because that feels very yes, maybe especially especially in the north, and that feels very 2016. Complaining about 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 the press coverage, Um, 
And um, one great moment is that he says that his experience, he's, he, he knew Lee from the Mexican-American War. Right. Uh, and he says, my experience in the Mexican War was of great advantage to me afterward. The natural disposition of most people is to clothe the commander of a large army whom they do not know with almost superhuman abilities. A large part of the national army and most of the press of the country clothed General Lee with just such qualities. But I had known him personally. I knew he was mortal. And it was just as well that I felt this. It's this great, this great moment where he, you know, he's telling for posterity, he's telling everyone, look, Lee wasn't all that. Right. What did you feel like you learned about his leadership style from the book? Did it give you insights into Well, I would say that that there's a very strong moral uh, aspect to his leadership. Um, You know, he describes, for instance, I think it's General Ewell, uh, the the Confederate general, and he says that he showed both gallantry and skill uh, in leading two unholy, fighting two unholy wars, right, both in the Mexican War and for the South. So clearly part of of Grant's uh, leadership has to do with his moral belief in what he's doing. Um, even, you know, he didn't believe in the Mexican War, and that, that really affected how he, he, he handled, I think, his, his actions in the Civil War. And, uh, but I would say most of all, it's that he, he had a very strong capacity to see events clearly and not be shrouded by the politics of the moment, um, the, uh, whatever the fears were of that moment, and so he sort of, you read it and you just, he eliminates all of that. And you can see that's the way he thought. And that's very rare in a human being to, to, to block out everything else and just see clearly what exactly needs to be done. One of the worst criticisms he could give is uh, he calls General um, Albert Johnston from the, of the Confederacy, calls him vacillating and undecided, yes. right? And that, that tells you a lot mm-hmm. about, about Grant. You know, like that was, um, that's a very harsh assessment in, in his worldview. And um, he, he also, he was, he was a quartermaster, right, during the Mexican-American mm-hmm. War. And so he's really focused on logistics. Yes, you know? supplies it's, and logistics. It's, it's yeah. all about supplies yeah. Yeah. and, you know, and, and you have the engineers to set up the bridge. I mean, he's, yeah. and, and you could think of that as being, uh, you know, small bore and in the weeds. But it's also essential to what he's trying to, to accomplish. So you had mentioned, David, how, you know, obviously one of the first big things that struck you was just the fact that it it doesn't go past the Civil War. He doesn't talk at all about his presidency. Did you find, though, that there was anything, um, anything you pulled from the book that helped inform to you why he would have made such a great general but was sort of largely an unsuccessful president? Well, first of all, I'm not totally ready to accept the idea that he was a largely unsuccessful okay. president. Uh, I, I mean, there are historians who've spent their careers studying him, and, and they some feel he was, and some are reassessing that now. Um, I think that what you see running through his presidency, uh, and you, you see from the book, is what I talked about earlier, which was his moral conviction on the uh, evil of slavery and um, on trying to figure out how to handle this, the, the, the problem that was tearing the nation apart. Um, and his presidency was during some of the most difficult years of our nation's history, the Reconstruction. And uh, I couldn't help reading it today, uh, the book, and thinking about that Reconstruction, which is not really in the book, but thinking about um, the problems that President Obama has had to deal with um, as the first African-American president 
you know, a century and a half later, um, and how Grant's attempts um, to give African Americans equal rights um, were met so much intense opposition that shrouded the clouded the the way he was perceived for for generations afterwards. And I I got the sense that he, I think if you just read this memoir and you don't know what Grant did later, uh, I think I would have been surprised to have been told, oh yeah, he went on to become president, Uh right? Because he just didn't, he didn't seem to have that sort of ambition. He seemed skeptical of of political leaders. You know, he he doesn't seem uh, really enthused at all by what politicians have to do to be successful, whereas what he seems very clear on what military officers have to do to be successful. So I think that it it doesn't, it shows you, the, the memoir shows you a leader. It doesn't, to me, necessarily show a, a political leader. No, and, and one of the interesting things is, as, as a military leader, um, he was able to exert uh, full control to shape the way that his army worked and was perceived. Mm-hmm. And as president, he seemed sort of uh, lost in the sense of there were so many uh, so-called friends of his in the government and out who were manipulating him and using him and turning and 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 corrupting uh, his presidency in different ways that he seemed either dis- not interested in, in dealing with or unable to deal with. Um, I'm curious, what what did you think of the just the the sheer quality of of the writing of the prose versus what you've seen in other in other presidential memoirs? Um, it felt to me as though it could be written today, which stunned me. Um, I I felt like I was reading about recent history um, as opposed to something that happened you know so long ago, um, and. That freshness and clarity just blew me away. I mean, I, I thought, you know, this is enjoyable to read. It's not just, it's not just uh, something that's going to uh, illuminate, but but bring me joy while I'm reading it. And that really hit me. That's even more impressive, given that so much of the book is devoted to, you know, really in the weeds of battles and troop movements, and. And I, I could imagine an editor, a book editor today, wrongly, but I could I, uh-huh. I could imagine saying, yeah, like, say, oh. look, you know, you got to pair a lot of that back, <laughs> totally. you know, <laughs> give us some more of the sexy stuff, you know, yeah. like, you yeah, know. What... Thank you, Mark Twain, for not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Or, or um, the fact that he was dying when he was writing. Right. He didn't have time to change right. it. So instead, he just, yeah. you know, he just plows through, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's chronological. Yeah. Um, you know, he just goes from, from battle to battle, but you see... You see the war developing through his eyes, and he's very clear. At a couple of times, he says, "Look, I, I'm not going to pretend to give a comprehensive account of the Civil War. I'm just going to tell you what I saw." Yes, and um, and and he is funny. You know, he's during the Mexican American War. He's he's struggling with these pack mules that <laughs> that they just can't get to do anything. You know, and he says, uh, "I'm not aware of ever having used a profane expletive in my life, but I would have the charity to excuse those who may have done so if they were in charge of a trade of Mexican pack mules at the time." You know, <laughs> and just like. He just gives you little nuggets like that that are scattered throughout the book, and and you you remember that there's there's this person uh, behind, um, you know, behind the battles, behind everything that's 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 going on. He also has a nice way of using words. I mean, there's a 
I think it, seeing it early on, I think it's the first time he's ever ridden a train is to go to West Point. And uh, it's going like 18 miles an hour. So just to, but he makes you feel like you're riding a train for the first time in your <laughs> life. And he describes how it, it's annihilating space. So for him to capture with that phrase, I thought was really nice. The writing is really, it's, it's deceptively beautiful at times, yeah. you know, because, yeah. because it's, because it is so methodical. But there's there's a moment I can't remember which battle this is, uh, where he says, you know, there was some firing back and forth during the night, but nothing rising to the dignity of a battle until daylight. <laughs> you know, and just right, right. think of how many ways there are to write that sentence, right? Yeah. But the you first nothing rising to the dignity of a battle. Um, that tells you so much in such a short sentence. Tells you so much about how he sees war, how he sees his role, how he sees what what all sides are trying to accomplish here. The book has a lot of verbatim exchanges and and uh, letters between, say, Grant or Lee, mm-hmm. and, and also uh, orders that he delivers. And those are really good writing. Really yeah, no, worth they're reading. yes. It's not like that. You know, they sometimes you read a book and it comes to a document and you skip over it because mm-hmm. it, it's in you know, italics <laughs> right. or whatever. It just doesn't seem like the opposite. Yeah. yeah, these these some of the best stuff and. And, and Carlos and I both were struck by the exchange that, that Grant had with Lee um, uh, after a battle when they were trying to work out um, whether the soldiers could go to the battlefield and clear out the dead and wounded. And it was a, it was a long exchange. I mean, many letters back and forth. And it was really Grant's way of saying without having to say it what a jerk Lee really was. <laughs> because in the Lee kept... Uh, offering uh, reasons why he didn't want to follow the way that Grant would, you know, in terms of how much time that it would have, what sort of truce it would be, uh, white flags, all of these. He raised all of these different questions to the point where I think it dragged on for 48 hours or something, and by that time, all of the wounded were dead. Um, and so that exchange of letters really had a, it was one of the most memorable parts of the book. And there was nothing subtle about it being no. there. You could yeah. tell very much that, that Grant really wanted to sort of show you that uh, this this beloved general um, had been nickel and diming over details uh, of of how they were going to recover the 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 wounded from from battle. Is there any other question or observation that um, it raised for you about legacy, like the way that Grant's legacy has? been preserved over time. I consider race the American dilemma from the beginning all the way through to today. And I think Grant was an underappreciated factor in trying to advance uh, our reconciliation of that horrible scar in American life. When he was dying, you know, the book ends with sort of his, his hope um, that because of the outpouring of love from all quarters or respect, to him, um, from not just Northerners but but Confederates, um, that that his death or, or something at that moment was capturing um, a reconciliation, um, which is really sort of uh, at the heart of the American uh, uh, debate, you know, from the beginning, you know, how to reconcile all these different factions and forces and beliefs into one democracy. And it was somewhat naive of him to think that because everybody was expressing this this fondness for him as he was dying, that it represented something larger. Um, but it struck me as so powerful because 
it made me think about how that's really what we've been trying to do forever in this country. Grant's battle with cancer and his race to finish his memoirs marked something of a turning point in journalism. The media camped out near his house in the final months to chronicle any detail that they could about this national figure. His funeral in New York drew more than a million and a half people, which was even more than came out for Lincoln's funeral. We remember Grant for ending the Civil War, but we can also remember him for beginning the subsequent slow, long march towards civil rights. And we remember him for battle, but his words upon accepting the presidential nomination, which ended up being the same words engraved on his tomb's epitaph, are, let us have peace. Special thanks to this week's guests, Carlos Lozada, David Marinus, and Michelle Kroll. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. And if you want to find us on Twitter or Instagram, it's at presidential underscore WP. Next week, we'll be talking about the closest, most hotly contested presidential race in history. And that was for the election of Rutherford B. Hayes. Thank you, as always, for listening. And I'll be back next week with more Presidential. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional. Or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.